This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are between the holidays, as one might say. And more so than any other time of the year, this is when people are distracted, they're going places, they're on vacation, they're hard to get a hold of, and sometimes it's just tough to snag the people we want to come on the show. So what we're going to do today, for the most part, is uh, do our monthly catch-up, although we do anticipate uh, some other voices joining us before the hour is out. I expect that at least in part, our t- today's program is going to be inspired by one of my fellow hosts here at KDVS, Franz Kassing, who's been hosting, I don't know, for 10 years, I think, at this point, her wonderful program, It's About You. Franz has been one of our best pals here during our uh, our stint at the mic, and an interview that she conducted uh, some time back with one of our professors of history at UC Davis and was transcribed for our publication, KDVations, has, shall we say, set this correspondent off. It's given me a sort of surge of adrenaline that I think will carry us in our second segment today, but I think I will just uh, leave it at that for the moment and uh, start the show as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today being the 3rd of December. You know, it strikes me as I do this that it seems that some days in history a, a lot more things happen than on other days, and today's one of those days that Seems to be kind of an also-ran. And by the way, we generally take our selections from Today in History, which is based on the History Channel's television series This Week in History. But according to our day-by-day review of world events, December 3rd in 1586, potatoes were introduced to England by Sir Thomas Harriet. They came by way of Columbia. On December 3rd in 1868, the treason trial of Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, began. On December 3rd in 1879, Thomas Edison gave the first demonstration of his light bulb. This was a private demonstration done for financial backers J.P. Morgan and the Vanderbilt families only. According to the History Channel, English inventor Joseph Swan had given the first public demonstration of an incandescent light bulb in January of the same year, but as often was the case, Edison was the first to bring the product to market, hence his demonstration for financial backers. All right, big day uh, for movies, 1907. Future movie star Mary Pickford and future director Cecil B. DeMille appear in the Broadway play The Warrens of Virginia. Not to be outdone by Thomas Edison, December 3rd, 1910, neon lighting, developed by the French physicist Georges Claude, has its first public demonstration at the Paris Motor Show. And finally, in what may be the lamest day in history this program can remember, it was on December 3rd in 1968 when American Major League Baseball reduced the height of the pitcher's mound from 15 inches to 10 inches in an attempt to increase scoring. I guess we're kind of stuck with trying to find who was born on this day, and I guess rather appropriately, born on December 3rd in 1948, singer Ozzy Osbourne. And, uh, whew, that part of the show is behind us. 
Our quote of the day and quip of the day both come from Jay Leno. Take your pick for the label. According to Jay, the U.S. Postal Service announced this week they've lost $3.8 billion this year. And here's the worst part. You know how they lost it? In the mail. And referring to the recent incident with Tiger Woods, Jay said, now there's going to be a movie made about it. It's going to be called Crouching Tiger, Crunching Escalade. Our stat of the day is that according to the Rasmussen polling service, 53% of Americans believe capitalism is better than socialism, whereas 20% say socialism is better than capitalism, and 27% are not sure. Since there's no evidence that Rasmussen defined either term, this may be the most worthless stat we've ever cited. Let's see if we can't do the good, the bad, and the ugly. of the week magazine it was a good week for justice last week when germany restored the national high jump record from 1936 to 95 year old margaret bergman lambert of new york back in 1936 margaret apparently set the german women's national record of five feet three inches but days later was kicked off the team for being jewish she fled the next year for the u.s where she's lived ever since German officials said it was an act of justice to restore Lambert's seven-decade-old record. And uh, better late than never, we always say. It was conversely a bad week last week for sports arenas when it was revealed that the 80,000-seat Pontiac Superdome, the former home of the Detroit Lions, was sold to a Canadian developer for $583,000 which does represent a 99% discount on the $55.7 million it cost to build the stadium 34 years ago. To which we would add, fans of the Sacramento Kings, take note. We would like to, by the way, continue our, uh, our offer to the Maloofs that if they wish to move the Kings to Las Vegas or any place because they can't get their treasured new sports arena, well, we volunteer to help them pack. It was apparently an ugly week over in the UK last week for bikinis. After a study by the University of Leeds found that women who reveal 40% of their skin attract the most men. Said researcher Dr. Colin Hendry with typical British understatement, anymore, and the signal changes from allure to one indicating general availability and future infidelity. And as a bonus, it was a really ugly week last week for... Finding Your Roots, when it was revealed that a California man who set out to find his birth father was shocked to learn that his father was, in fact, homicidal maniac Charles Manson. Apparently, Matthew Roberts, age 41, said that at first the revelation made him frightened and angry, but he has since developed some kind of emotional connection to the jailed cult leader. Said Roberts, he sends me weird stuff and always signs it with a swastika. And finally, from the Only in America file, we have this item. A New York City high school teacher is suing the city's Board of Education, claiming she injured her head after slipping on free condoms the school had handed out to students. School officials are responsible, Karen Hollander alleges, because they caused, allowed, and permitted condoms to be distributed, many of which were opened during the lunch period and thrown on the floor. 
And from the Only in Europe file, we have this. Apparently France is trying to deflect accusations that it cheated its way into the World Cup Finals. Evidently last week in a game between France and Ireland, the French captain committed a blatant foul, hitting the ball with his hand toward a teammate who then scored the winning goal. Apparently everybody saw his hand do this, except the referee, who ruled the goal legal. An independent and the Irish Independent suggested that the French should make their team forfeit the win. France's Le Figaro countered with, Nobody here is proud of this win. Ireland's honor may have been slightly bruised, but ours has been seriously wounded. Yes, I know, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And please, hold the hate mail. But when it was, as a child it was first explained to me that in the game of soccer, or football as it's known in the world, you couldn't touch the ball with your hands, I concluded immediately that there was something seriously demented about this sport. And I'm not sure that I was wrong. Seems to this correspond that we have reversed millions of years of human evolution, where we use our brains and hands to create tools to develop a sporting activity wherein the use of the hands is banned. But that's just my opinion. And by the way, the opinions you hear on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. Although I am almost positive that when the regents conduct business, they are allowed to use their hands. All right, I'm sorry to report that uh, from the national news this week, President Obama traveled to West Point and was photographed with various uh, cadets with beaming faces shaking his hand as he prepares to send them off to war. We agree with the president that a war in Afghanistan has always made a certain amount of sense versus a war in Iraq, which never has made any sense. But these conflicts, like swamps, tend to be easy to get into and hard to get out of. And you don't have, if you don't have an actual plan as to what you're trying to accomplish, they tend to stretch on forever. So we do hope that before those 30,000 uh, American men and women are shipped overseas that the White House will print for all of us a list of what it is they're trying to accomplish so that when it's accomplished, we can then leave. And speaking of Afghanistan, we've often noted on this program that sometimes the most important stories are like on page A8. And uh, we offer up then the Sunday edition of, we offer up then last Sunday's edition of the Sacramento Bee, where on page A8, there was a reprint of Scott Shane's article from the New York Times about how the U.S. Senate was revisiting what happened in Tora Bora back in December of 2001. This is a story that should have gotten more play in the press. It concerns the escape of Osama bin Laden from U.S. forces at Tora Bora. According to a report from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, removing the al-Qaeda leader from the battlefield eight years ago would not have eliminated the worldwide extremist threat. But the decisions that opened the door for his escape to Pakistan allowed bin Laden to emerge as a potent symbolic figure who continues to attract a steady stream of money and inspire fanatics worldwide. This report was based in part on a little-noticed 2007 history of the Tora Bora episode by the military's Special Operations Command, in which it asserts that the consequences of not sending U.S. troops back in 2001 to block bin Laden's escape are still being felt. This committee report was prepared at the request of Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts, who's the Foreign Relations Committee's Democratic chairman. Notably, the report concludes unequivocally that in mid-December 2001, bin Laden and his deputy Ayman al-Zawahiri were at the cave complex where bin Laden had operated previously during the fight against Soviet forces. 
New reports suggest that a larger troop commitment to Afghanistan might have resulted in the demise not only of bin Laden and his deputy, but also of Mullah Mohammed Omar, the leader of the Afghan Taliban. You know, the Taliban, the people were sending 30,000 troops to go fight. Like several previous accounts, the committee's report blames General Tommy Franks, then the U.S. top commander, and Donald Rumsfeld, the U.S. defense secretary, for not putting a large number of U.S. troops there, lest they fuel resentment among the Afghans. The article noted that Tommy Franks, who declined to comment for the committee's report, has at times questioned whether bin Laden was even at Tora Bora at the time. The Foreign Relations Committee report draws on previous accounts, including books by two CIA officers, Gary Schroen and Gary Bernston, also by commander in the Army's elite Delta Force. Schroen and Bernston's uh, analysis of the flawed taxic- tactics at Tora Bora are generally echoed in the official Special Operations Command history, which said, quote, it's been determined with reasonable certainty, unquote, that bin Laden was at Tora Bora. Americans at Tora Bora intercepted bin Laden's voice in radio transmissions. A former Delta Force commander told Senate staff members that CIA officers had a guy with them called Jalal. He was the foremost expert on bin Laden's voice, saying, quote, He worked on bin Laden's voice for seven years, and he knew him better than anyone else in the West. To him, it was very clear that bin Laden was there on the mountain. We're proud to note that... <laughs> We interviewed Gary Bernson on this program and would encourage you to listen to it in its entirety and our, in our archives at radioparallax.com. We'd remind you, if you missed the original broadcast, that Gary Bernson asked for 7,000 Army Rangers to surround Tora Bora. He was instead pulled off the job and sent home without a debriefing. Those who replaced him then decided to, uh, to hire the local talent to see if they couldn't... Uh, captured bin Laden using Afghan forces. Forces that later turned out that bin Laden had bribed to let him escape. We would note at this point that there are some out there who would accuse those who might wonder out loud if this sort of thing had been planned, that they were falling into a conspiracy theory. Of course, uh, stay tuned. We'll have more to say about that shortly. It's been the observation of this correspondent that lunatic ideas uh, promoted by the right that involve cabals and plots are seldom called conspiracy theories. But uh, I think that might be a good, uh, a good description of the Wall Street Journal's recent editorial, which asked us last week uh, to uh, welcome in the scary new world of Obamacare. Said the journal, ever since President Obama first unveiled his plan for health care reform, Many have warned that government-run health care will invariably mean less health care as bureaucrats trim services to cut cost. We didn't expect those fears to be validated so soon. But last week, a federal advisory panel declared that contrary to decades of medical practice, only women over 50, not 40, need submit to regular mammograms to test for breast cancer, and that women 50 to 74 should be screened every two years instead of annually. Well, the truth is, this is not a matter of government bean counters deciding how they're going to save cash. It's simply not. Said Susan Love in the Los Angeles Times, uh, you know, that's quite a conspiracy theory they've got over there. But uh, in reality, the panel's recommendation has nothing to do with reducing costs, but reflects an honest attempt to weigh the latest research. For example, a recent study in Britain found that an annual mammogram between ages 40 and 50 had no statistically significant impact on women's mortality, 
while causing them much needless anxiety. Adding to that was Dr. Michael Wilkes, writing in the Sacramento Bee, who said if anxiety were the only downside, then perhaps more screening would be worth it. But especially for younger women, mammograms often come back with false positives, leading to surgical biopsies and in some cases, unnecessary mastectomies. It adds up to a lot of risk and suffering to save what the task force had said is one life for every 1,904 women tested annually in their 40s. I would add, ladies and gentlemen, this is why medicine is an art and not an exact science. It's uh, very unfortunate in this case how this federal advisory panel uh, dropped this one in the laps of practitioners across the country to a great deal of confusion, but we will try and address this issue in a future program. And I can't think of a better guy to start with than Michael Wilkes. And speaking of science controversies, a lot of people are trying to make something of uh, this batch of emails that was uh, stolen from the Climate Research Center at the University of East Anglia in England. And doggone it, that's another one we don't have time for today, but suffice it to say, and this will quote The Economist, there's nothing in the emails so far to suggest that the authors do not believe in man-made global warming and are making the whole thing up, as some have been claiming. They summarize by saying, none of this is evidence of fraud. Looked at broadly, the emails seem to show a pretty workaday picture of scientists with frustrations and sloppiness, disagreements, opponents, bad mouth, and cultural differences. The magazine notes, as we did in this program some weeks ago, that a spate of recent claims of global cooling rely on comparing 1998, which is the second hottest year in modern records, which go back to 1880, with 2008, which was relatively cooler. Yet according to the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, a part of NASA, 2008 was the ninth hottest year on record. 2009 is shaping up to be the sixth hottest. All of the 10 hottest years recorded have come since 1997. And retreating Arctic sea ice provides even more visible data to support conclusions of warming. If someone tries to dredge this up, just point out to them that the difference between a few years ago and now and how much ice there is at the North Pole reveals a deficit in ice five times the area of the entire state of California. And finally, although we do respect the McClatchy newspapers and frequently quote from our local entity, the Sacramento Bee, we apparently do have to whap them upside the head for their editorial on the 24th of November, wherein the editorial board suggested it was time to move away from the claw, the leaf pile-removing mechanism used to pick up Branches, tree trimmings, and other yard waste. In fact, we'd like to quote Phil Perry's letter to the editor because he expressed himself very well. Said Mr. Perry, The Bee wrote, Since 2004, the city has urged residents in parts of the city to voluntarily use green waste containers. Thousands have responded. This program is as much a voluntary effort as is the selective service system. The city deposits cans throughout your neighborhood and you're expected to use them. The only option given for you is to call up the city and volunteer that it can take the can back. <laughs> Added Mr. Perry, in my neighborhood, setbacks are such that another waste can becomes a futile exercise in space planning. Either that or you're faced with the eyesore of cans left outside. The city is required to charge the full cost of green waste removal. I pay for the right to leave my green waste in the street for the short period prior to pickup. But oh, I forgot. As soon as your neighborhood is, quote, volunteered, unquote, for this effort, the claw tractors suddenly become scarce. My guess is that's part of the plan. 
Close with, the clause do an excellent job of clearing our neighborhood of green waste. They should be allowed to continue to provide this valuable service to our city's residents. I'd like to add in a personal, personal note that uh, one of my neighbors and I went down the street to clear out the backyard of one of our elderly and somewhat debilitated neighbor. By the time we were done in his front and backyards, we filled up the street the entire length of the front of his house three times. All I can say in addition to that is thank God for the claw. Had we been week after week trying to stuff those little cans full of green waste and let it the city come to take those away, well, it would be a year-long process. And why do we care about this issue? Well, it's an example of a government plan that's ill-thought-out and which we suspect has some kind of hidden agenda. Someone in the city has come up with this boneheaded idea, and they're planning to ram it down our throats, like it or not. And I'm sure even if you're listening outside the Sacramento area, as we know some of you are overseas, I think you can relate to this simple governmental injustice. You know, we haven't heard uh, from any of our overseas listeners for a while, so if you've got any similar stories about uh, what goes on in where you are, uh, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We always enjoy hearing from people who hear our broadcasts via podcasting in uh, Serbia, the UK, China, etc. But we need at this point to take a short break, so let's do that. You are listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Leverett. We've got plenty more. Stay tuned.